could you just like let us know kind of how to pronounce your your name? Uh, Sebastian Lorber. Lorber. Okay. I was curious if it was gonna be like sorbet, <laughs> light tea, right? Sebastian, welcome to the FS Jam podcast. Hello, everyone. Thank you for having me. Why don't you go ahead and let our listeners know who you are and what you do and what kind of projects you work on. So I'm Sebastian. I'm working currently with Facebook on DocuSaurus, which is a documentation static site generator. I'm a freelancer, so I'm not a Facebook employee. And I've been doing this for like over a year now. And uh, previously, uh, I was mostly uh, doing uh, freelance consulting uh, jobs in the React ecosystem. So mostly consulting and sometimes long-term missions with uh, implementation work. You also helped out with getting the Redwoods documentation to be multilingual. We talked about this with Claire on a recent episode. So we really appreciate all that help that you gave us. And that's partly what got us connected. I'm a big fan of trying to make documentation available to as many people as possible. So I was really, really happy to have gotten the opportunity to work on that. And I'm really happy to have you here so we can get more into your, your background and how you, you got into what you're doing. So I'd be curious, like, how did you first get into programming, like your first programming language or where you studied or if you studied any of that kind of stuff? We like getting that kind of background from our guests. Yeah, so I think it's the first time uh, someone asked me, and I have a lot of things to say about this. It could last uh, for hours, I think. So I think I got into programming uh, when I was um, 13 or something like that. I was playing Counter-Strike and things like that. So the first things I did was mostly uh, script some actions. So that, for example, there was a, a special jump that you could do in this game, which uh, was called the Bunny Hop. It was a... a a sequence of keys that you have to press in a correct order with the good timing. And somehow I, I, I created a macro to, to press just one key and, and do all the actions in the right order for me so that I can uh, do the, the complex movement uh, more easily. So, and uh, later I, uh, I was a bit involved in um, not the hacking scene, but more like the uh, downloading uh, movies online and things like that. So there were things on uh, IRC like DCC servers and things like that that permit to download uh, illegal f- uh, movies and files and whatever. So this is something uh, that got me uh, interested by computers. I didn't learn really to program before I was uh, I was uh, in my engineering school, which I did uh, maybe four or five la- years later. So mostly I was playing with the computer and learned programming later at school. Cool. Yeah, I was also someone who downloaded a lot of stuff as well. It sounds like you were a little bit before like the, the LimeWire days, right? Yeah, before that, there was uh, a lot of things uh, going on in IRC and also on uh, online forums. We called this, I think, boards or something like that. And when people uh, exchanged uh, links, but uh, I, I got somehow into hacking, so I was uh, like a script kiddie trying to exploit remote servers in universities to put movies on, on these um, locations because they had uh, good connections, so it was easy to, to distribute the movies. So I got into somehow uh, the hacking scene by uh, by trying to to get into these servers and uh, and put the movies there. 
That is so cool. That's a really cool story. Have you ever heard the term phone freaking? I think I've heard about it, but I didn't. I don't know exactly what this is anymore. <laughs> There's a good book. It's called Exploding the Phone that I think you might enjoy. It's like the birth of hacking, essentially. Like the original hackers before you could hack computers, you would hack the telephone system. Like literally, you would figure out the dial tones, that's how it all worked. You'd have dial tones that would basically program AT&T like the bell system. And so people would figure out what these tones were, find ways to reproduce them, and then like do that into the phone system. So you get free calls or you actually get into systems you're not supposed to be able to get into. I think I remember this, but I never tried to do this. I think it was before I tried to hack things. Not sure it was still possible at the time I tried to hack my first server. So <laughs> Yeah, this is actually the, the birth of Apple. This is part of their whole story is that when Steve Jobs and Wozniak got together, they were building what were called blue boxes, which they were basically building things that would let you hack the phone system and then sell it to people, which was like very illegal at the time. And then how'd you get into like JavaScript? I did my engineering school where I mostly learned about uh, Java. We saw a lot of uh, languages, but uh, the main one was uh, Java, like uh, many engineering school uh, at this time. So 10 years ago, I started as a Java developer doing uh, things like uh, Spring and Hibernate and things like that in big companies in France. After maybe three years of Java, I was uh, interested in functional programming. So I decided to learn uh, Scala. I've joined the startup as a CTO to develop the startup. The thing is, I was not a front-end developer at all. And in the beginning, I didn't even like JavaScript. For me, it was like a toy language that you that you use to make some text blink or things like that. The thing is, I saw that my team um, on my startup struggled to make the front-end uh, work. They were using Backbone.js, and we had something uh, quite complex to build. The thing is, I saw that they did some mistakes in the code, and I tried to help them by using my experience doing some backend development. I was able to help them figure out code patterns that they can use to, to make the front end uh, more simple and uh, more easy to maintain. So this is how I became a front end developer. Basically, in uh, 2014, I was an early adopter of React uh, like seven years ago. When nothing existed, there was no state management at all. So you had to do things on your own. There was no Redux or even uh, even the, the precursors to Redux didn't exist at this time. Progressively, the React ecosystem uh, was created and there were a lot of tools uh, created each year. And this is how I became an almost full-time uh, front-end developer. It sounds like you were into React long before you were working for Facebook. Is that kind of how you got connected to Facebook? Because you were already connected to the React world? I think uh, I'm connected to the React world for a long time because uh, I've been using uh, it for like seven years and uh, I know many people that now works for Facebook and things like that. And uh, we had a lot of discussions in the early days with many people that still are in the React community today. So I'm not uh, maybe the, the most famous uh, developer of the early days today because uh, some of them are much more known and maybe are in the React core team now. But uh, I think um, many people in the early days will have seen my name in GitHub issues and things like that. I tried to contribute also to this ecosystem by creating some uh, tools and uh, tried to, to innovate with new new things uh, that I wanted to show to the community. So for example, before Redux existed, I have created a framework in my startup that was uh, basically it had a time travel debugging before Redux was released. 
and I've published on, uh, on YouTube a video like uh, one year before the release of Redux with uh, an experience with uh, time travel debugging. But the thing is, it wasn't very polished and I was not very good at marketing and also at documentation, which is a bit uh, weird today. This project never took off because uh, it was mostly something internal that we built for our startup. It was not very uh, usable outside of the startup. So we didn't take off and we didn't push it for it to be adopted by the community. Daniel Bramov uh, has done a, a better work than me to push these ideas. And I think uh, a lot of other tools now are, have been created by uh, many of our people in the community. And did you implement Flux to do that? Or did you get a different architecture to figure out the same thing? I was kind of curious, like how it worked. At this time, we were a lot of people were trying to innovate with uh, the same approach. Many people in the early days of React uh, were interested in React because they had some kind of experience in functional programming. So for example, me, I have uh, been a Scala developer some years before, so I was able to understand what is uh, the functional purity. I used things like uh, monads and things like that. So all these things helped me understand the value of React. Also, other people in the community, for example, um, David Nolan was uh, was someone in the that created the Closure Script language, and uh, he showed maybe very early in the React days that uh, the the functional programming model was very interesting for the performance of React. And this is something that even the React core team didn't show at this time. So he he really uh, got a lot of people in the fun functional programming uh, community uh, interested by React. We were all trying to to do something a bit like a Redux does, but in a worst way somehow. And Dana Bermoff has been able to, to figure a, a clean way to, to do this. That was David Nolan for the Closure Script and React, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I listened to a podcast with him a, a long, long time ago. And once I made the connection between his like Closure Script work and React, it was like, uh, a lot of things click together because it, it makes a lot of sense. As you say, you know, people who really like React tended to really like functional programming and glad that we can get you on to really talk about this history here. React is so interesting in that it's completely taken over web development, but I find very few people actually know the history. I and mean, if you ask people like who created it, or if you ask them like who Jordan Walk is, most people have no idea. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is one of the things I enjoy getting people on who've been there really since the, the beginning to get a lot of this deeper history because I'm a, I'm a big history buff. So helping put you in the canon as you deserve to be. <laughs> I don't know who Dan is, but I don't even know what he's done. Uh. <laughs> no, it's, it's to me, React feels, I guess to even today, to a certain extent, still mysterious about who created it. Obviously, you can read about it and stuff, but like when I always think of React, I think like Facebook created it, but you never like really think about why Facebook created it, how it was created for Facebook and all these other things. It just kind of became this massive thing one day and we all started using it. I think uh, in the history, a lot of things are a bit lost. For example, in the very beginning of React, I think the most famous uh, person in the the person that represented React was Pete Hunt. But today, nobody knows him in the community anymore, except the ones in, in the early days. Yeah, that's a perfect example. I actually went to a clubhouse specifically to hear Pete Hunt, because Pete Hunt and Jordan Walk and a bunch of people were doing a, a clubhouse not too long ago, because... For me, as like a, a developer advocate, I look at Pete Hunt's place in the history of React and it's like, it's crucial. It's it's really, really important. And like you say, 
no one knows. <laughs> no one has the slightest idea, but I imagine he probably is not that bothered by it, because for someone like that, when you do something like significant within the history of a field, doing the thing is what's more important, necessarily getting the recognition for it, although the recognition is, is also nice as well, I, I would guess. Does anyone care about who created Angular? Like, actually created Angular? He probably doesn't want to take credit for that at this point. <laughs> <laughs> like, this is the thing, like, what was before React? Before React, you had Angular. Was that before React? Angular 1 was before React. There was AngularJS, yeah. And Backbone and Ember. Those are kind of the three big things at the time. Yeah. And Browserify and RequireJS. <laughs> So let's get into DocuSaurus. So let's start with DocuSaurus 1. So uh, I was not in the at the creation of uh, DocuSaurus 1, so I don't know exactly the whole story. So it was created by Facebook maybe uh, four years ago or something like that. They noticed they had a lot of open source projects. Every time it was the same thing, they created a Jekyll uh, site for the doc and copy-pasted the same code from one site to another. And someday they had the idea to create a tool to make it easy to create doc sites for all their projects. Even if uh, it's not very customizable, at least it will reduce a lot the work to get the site online. So they created the first site and the first uh, version of uh, DocuSaurus. It was using React, but not in the same way as uh, most uh, GenStack uh, React uh, frameworks work today. So it was only using React on the server. There was a node process that rendered the pages on HTML files. The React wasn't used on the on the browser, so you don't uh, download React. It was quite similar, actually, to Jekyll and uh, simple uh, static site generators like Eleventy and Jekyll and things like that. For the JavaScript items in the browser, you download additional Vanilla.js components to make them work. A lot of, uh, of sites use the first version of DocuSaurus. For example, today there are still uh, the Babel website that is using uh, DocuSaurus. And also, I think uh, Prettier is also using DocuSaurus 1. That is super interesting that Facebook was literally just copy and pasting the same docs site from one to the other. Makes sense. Like, that's what... I probably would have done, you know, because with docs, you want it to look nice enough. You want it to get the information across that needs to get. You don't want to really belabor it. But at the same time, if you're just kind of like copy and pasting the same thing over and over again, you can't grow beyond whatever that initial boilerplate template is doing for you. So I'd imagine they were probably hitting up against limitations of what they could even do with it. And that's also really interesting. You were saying how it was basically like server side rendered and then spitting out static files. So it sounds like it was kind of like Next.js, but in static mode a little bit. Or would that be Gatsby? Actually, it's it's different because Gatsby and Next.js are using a static uh, mode generation, but they hydrate React on the front end. So, for example, in the first version of DocuSaurus, you couldn't use state at all of your React components. You had to use, for example, a jQuery or something like that if you want to add a dynamic components on the front end. So it's quite uh, surprising to not hydrate uh, React, but uh, it was how it works. So it was really something quite like uh, Jekyll. I think there is something quite interesting to discuss about this. One of the main difference between DocuSaurus 1 and DocuSaurus 2 is that DocuSaurus 2 hydrates React on the front end. So it is a real single page application while DocuSaurus 1 was not a single page application. It was just a static HTML pages that you navigate with the regular uh, browser navigation. 
That's great. And we can probably infer some of this, but just kind of dig into this. Like, what were the issues with DocuSource? One, like, what were some of the limitations that required you to make this change so that now it's, you know, getting rehydrated and now we have this kind of interactivity? Like, what sort of limitations were you running into with DocuSource 1? As I wasn't there at this time, I don't know exactly all the limitations, but I think we have seen with frameworks like uh, Gatsby that uh, creating uh, single page applications could lead to a good experience. So for example, uh, there, there were techniques like prefetching. So when you over a link, you download the assets, the JavaScript for the next page. And then when you click on the link, everything is already ready. It just has to render on the client without fetching anything on the server. So it gives a, a good navigation experience because you don't change from one page to another. For example, you can persist the scroll position of many items on the page. You don't see a blank screen when the next page is loading if you have a slow connection and things like that. So I think it can increase the, the user experience. I think this is something very interesting is that, for example, if you compare the Cursorus 1 and the Cursorus 2, the lighter score may not be better for version 2, despite the experience being better for the end user. So I think there is some kind of mismatch between the, the score that the monitoring tools give you and the, the real experience that the, the user had, because the, the monitoring tools are not really able to understand the, the whole picture. They mostly measure the, the performance of the very first load, but uh, they don't measure the, the experience in general, I think. Yeah, I've always struggled to really know how much stock to put into Lighthouse scores and, and things like that, because it makes sense because if you think about it, it's coming from Chrome, which is the ones who are creating these, the crawlers that you're trying to optimize for. So it makes sense that you'd want to optimize for whatever they want you to optimize for. But as you say, that may or may not be reflective of anything real in terms of speed and, and how you interact with the site. And you, you mentioned a couple of times there, I've, I've been saying, what was it like working on DocuSource 1? You didn't even work on DocuSource 1, which I didn't know, actually, I thought that you were the DocuSaurus guy. So I'm, I'm kind of curious, like you are the DocuSaurus 2 guy, I, I think. So where do you come into this story? Like at what point did you enter the picture and how much of creating DocuSaurus 2 were you a part of? Actually, I just joined DocuSaurus last year. So the project exists for already like four or five years, maybe. In 2017, the, the first version uh, was uh, released. I think after maybe 2019, they decided to create the second version. The first version still existed, but uh, the work on uh, the version 2 has started. And uh, we are in alpha for like two years, which is uh, <laughs> too much probably. We are working on the version 2 for like uh, two years already, and it's still in alpha, but uh, the, the beta will be released soon normally. So I think it gives some good signal to the community that uh, the, the thing uh, starts to be uh, more ready and stable. So I've joined the DocuSaurus 2 only last year and the, the work was uh, was already started for like maybe more than a year already. So the thing is, I, I'm a freelancer, I'm not a Facebook employee. And I think uh, Facebook uh, was looking for someone to help on the project with uh, a good experience with React and its ecosystem and also a good experience with the open source model to be able to collaborate with external contributors. Also, there is something that happened. They had an intern at Facebook, which I think was an employee 
a bit later and uh, he died of a cancer so i think there was someone on the team that was missing uh, on the docusaurus team so unfortunately uh, i've uh, replaced him somehow probably to continue the project and ensure that uh, the, the version 2 uh, is completed i don't think uh, this uh, this is usual for facebook to hire a freelancer to maintain an open source project but maybe the circumstances uh, made it that i got the job uh, somehow i don't know exactly interesting and how many people are on the team we are mostly three uh, there are two persons at facebook mostly joel my manager and uh, young shun that is uh, not working too much on the cursorus these days because he has an internal uh, project at facebook and there are also some uh, external contributors like um, alexei and others there are many external contributors but they don't uh, contribute on a full-time basis that's really interesting that you say you've been working on it. it's been in beta for two years no it's not in beta <laughs> actually it's the it's in alpha and we are going to release the first beta after two years <laughs> gotcha that's funny yeah yeah for me i always think of like is it out or is it not out so to me like i don't even think of there being an alpha and a beta it's like well is it out yet or is it not out yet <laughs> but um yeah this is something that is always complicated to explain to the community but the motivation to be in beta for so long is that the first version had uh, some features like uh, internationalization and the thing is we didn't want to be in beta before having exactly the same set of features that the first version so somehow the alpha was the state in which we are when the version one users couldn't migrate to version two because all the features were not available. So now we have the same uh, feature parity with version one and we are going to release the beta um, very soon because uh, it doesn't make sense to wait much longer. I have just one PR to merge to release the, the beta and maybe write a blog post. So <laughs> this will be soon. One of the big things about Docsaurus 2 that took so long to get out, some of the big questions of like, has the community moved on to things like MDX? Does Docsaurus 2 support MDX yet? Yeah. There we go. It is uh, fully based on MDX actually, and somehow it is also a problem. <laughs> For example, if you are a React developer, you like MDX because you, you like using React components in your documentation to make it interactive. But the thing that there are a lot of users that are using Docusaurus, but they are not front-end developers, and they don't understand why a regular Markdown doesn't work uh, in Docusaurus, because um, somehow uh, the MDX parser is not totally compatible with common marks. So, for example, if you use uh, things that looks like React components, but are actually regular HTML tags, and you don't close them or things like that, you will have uh, compilation errors in MDX. This is something that we want to improve. We want to add a second parser to Docusaurus so that, for example, if you have an existing documentation which is on GitHub and using another tool that is compatible with common marks, you can use these exact documentations on Docusaurus without refactoring all the illegal characters and things like that. So we try to be to have a better compatibility with the existing ecosystem. But by default, MDX is not uh, always compatible. So sometimes you have to do changes on your documentation to make it compatible with MDX. And one of the big things with Docusaurus is that it's version control by default as well, isn't it? Sorry, what do you mean? You can do multiple versions quite easily. So, you know, say if you were just going to use a regular CMS, as like, why would you use Docsaurus? I mean, you could just use CMS or something. You can easily 
cross back compatible your, your docuseries to have multiple versions like this is the version for the documentation of seven six five the version it model of docuseries is is maybe a bit different from what people are used to because uh, we build a single page application for the whole site including all the versions this can be nice for some sites because for example if you have a, a small documentation it is uh, sustainable to build all the versions in a single page application and then you can have a drop down that permits to switch from one version to another and stay on the same documentation from version 1 to version 2 when uh, you choose the new version on the drop down but for example if you have a very large site it can be a, a problem for the scalability because if you have thousands of documents you have more page to build every time you, you submit a documentation change so for example if you have like 10 versions with uh, 10 thousands of uh, documentation of documents maybe you'd better use git branches for your docuseries site instead of using the built-in version features and uh, you can maybe deploy each version branch on a separate deployment so that if you do a doc change to the new world documentation you don't have to rebuild all the previous uh, versions one of the big things that has came with version 2 that version 1 struggled with is theming yeah about theming we use an approach that is quite similar to what gatsby has which is uh, i think they call this shadowing we call this uh, swizzling, but it's a bit similar. So basically, if there is a component, we have a default theme. If you want to override a component from uh, this theme, you can use the CLI to get the code of this component, put it in your source folder, and uh, change it uh, the way you want. And as long as it is in the correct place, it somehow overrides the default component that is in the theme, which permits you to customize the, the components. This works great, but I think this is not ideal also because somehow it creates a very large API surface for your code. So it's quite implicit because um, it's not a, a publicly documented API, but if someone copy past your code and try to modify it, if you do some internal changes to your term, then it might break the user code because maybe the props have uh, changed uh, or things like that. And some people find it hard to upgrade from one version to another because of the changes we made. Sometimes we break their CSS and things like that. Also. So this is difficult to, to maintain um, backward uh, compatibility for this. What I'd like in the future is to maybe use TypeScript to make it this contract more explicit. So for example, if there is a type error, it means that the user has to do something and maybe it will be more clear for the user and maybe also for us to know when we do something, it is a breaking change because sometimes we do breaking changes, but it's not clear for us uh, that it is. One of the hopes that we have now with the theme system, Docsaurus, is that anybody can create an NPM package, I believe. You can do it as an NPM package, I think. You include it into your theme and now you have a completely different theme for your docosaurus what i mean by that is there's like multiple different default themes like one of them is bootstrap that i saw and you basically do yarn add docosaurus slash theme bootstrap and then you put the theme in the in the config your docosaurus is now all in bootstrap and what we might see in the future is people just putting up random themes kind of a bit like gatsby where it's like here's a completely different docosaurus theme for you and they go Gotta get your twin dot macro in there, right? 
I mean, for, for now, we have uh, only the classic theme and the bootstrap theme. But the bootstrap theme is uh, absolutely unusable today. So, <laughs> unfortunately, it's not uh, maintained uh, very well. But it's uh, when uh, the beta will be out, uh, I will uh, start to work on this again. Because the idea is maybe to support three, three themes, like uh, the classic theme, the bootstrap, and uh, maybe one for Tailwind too. All the three main themes will uh, share the same user experience. So, for example, it's interesting because we can uh, create a package with a shared React code for all the three themes, which makes it more easy to maintain. And we just have to handle the, the classes and things like that in the style components of uh, each theme. For now, we are not there because it, uh, it requires some uh, refactor to extract the shared code related to the user experience and uh, separate it clearly from the classes. This is uh, some work that has to be done uh, to, to make this more sustainable. But uh, in general, the Cusaurus is a static type generator. We can really compare it to Gatsby because it is really quite similar to Gatsby. There are quite similar lifecycle APIs that you can implement. If you have used Gatsby, you know that there is a Gatsby node in which you can call a function called create page. This is something that I'd like to add to the Cusaurus too, so that basically you will be able to create pages with a node API and provide the data that the page needs. I think it can help to integrate with CMSs and things like that. Having a create page function would then take Docusaurus out of this territory of this is like developer only documentation to much further abroad. You know, it can be more integrated into even HR documentation or, or whatever, because that's one of the things that I was going to bring up with things like Gatsby and even Git. Is it Git Docs? Or is it Gitbook? I think it might be Gitbook. Yeah, Gitbook. Yeah, is all these other systems that are starting to pair up saying like, while writing Markdown is great, it's still a very specific skill that not the Y population has. So why can't you just, you know, just type in some, some Word document into any CMS and now that's documentation. That's what Gatsby does really well right now is the CMS integration. So it'd be really cool to see that in Docsaurus. I don't think the goal uh, of uh, Docusaurus is to provide a wide ecosystem of plugins for every existing CMS like Gatsby does, because this is really what Gatsby tried to do. But at least we should make it possible for people to, to build their own integration and maybe try to reuse as much of uh, the existing Docusaurus infrastructure as possible. Maybe some people will create uh, community plugins for integrating with CMSs, but I, I don't think it's the goal of uh, the core Docusaurus. But there is something that you mentioned that is important. Currently, it's a bit hard for regular users to use Docusaurus because they, they are not uh, used to Markdown. And more importantly, they are not used to opening pull requests on GitHub. This is really something uh, that is complicated. So if you are not a front uh, a developer, it's quite hard to, to contribute to the documentation because there is no user-friendly interface to, to edit the documentation. This is also something that I think there is a need for this at Facebook because um, I know, for example, they had a team that has migrated from a, a wiki documentation to Docusaurus and now somehow they are not too happy. I mean, some users find there is more friction to contribute to the documentation and we are looking for solutions to solve this problem. I think there is something that is interesting. Uh, for example, you, you can use a code sandbox and things like that to edit uh, the documentation in a sandbox and then it's possible through the user interface to submit a pull request 
directly from the, the interface. So you don't have to load the seed locally and get it running with the, the front-end tools. Also, uh, we are in touch with uh, StackBlitz. They have uh, something very interesting. They are creating a Node.js polyfill that can work in the browser with WebAssembly and things like that. This is a bit crazy. <laughs> I don't know how it works, but uh, it works. And they are able to run the Clusorus directly in the browser. When I mean running the Clusorus in the browser, it's not running the client-side code. They are running the build process in the browser somehow. This is quite interesting because this allows somehow to load uh, Docusaurus easily in the browser. Somehow it's like code sandbox, but faster, I think. I wonder if it's using one of Code Sandbox's um, tools. I think it's called Sandpack. Is they open source their like Webpack alternative that works in the browser? It's worth looking up. It's called, I believe it's Code Sandbox slash Sandpack on GitHub. One of my questions with things like Docusaurus 2 is, do you think that there will ever be a way to auto-document your code effectively? As in, you write some comments in your code, bish bash bosh, there's now a page in Docosaurus. I mean, you can't create uh, your whole documentation with this technique because it's only for the API part of the documentation. I'm not uh, really skilled to, to design documentation website, but some people say, for example, there are four kinds of documentations. You have the tutorials, the guides, uh, the, the API reference material, and maybe the explanations to, to give more context. This is for me only one part of the, the documentation, which is the API reference when we want to show something very accurate and uh, not uh, very user-friendly, but at least uh, be the reflection of the actual code. We don't provide anything in the cruisers, but some people have built some plugins. On the Redux website, they use something to, to generate documentation from uh, TypeScript types. And uh, we also have a community plugin to document an API. So it uses Redux, I think, but I don't know exactly what this is. I've used Swagger before which is some kind of UI you can put uh, to query uh, an API. And the Redux is quite similar, I think. Uh, so it generates some uh, documentation based on uh, on the, the, sh the schema of an API. Open API is what Swagger has been, been renamed to, because it used to be called Swagger, and then Swagger got purchased, and then they took the spec part of it, which is Open API, and extracted that into a foundation. And um, that's something that I've coming up to a lot because I'm doing a lot of a lot of work with APIs. There's just one last thing that I was actually curious to get uh, your thoughts on before we we closed out here. Claire had mentioned that the Jest team had been migrating from DocuSource one to DocuSource two, and that she was kind of like a fly on the wall for for some of that process. So I'd be curious to kind of get your views on that, what they were looking to get out of that migration, and how you were able to support them through that process. Oh. <laughs> so actually, um, it's mostly me that uh, reached out to the Jest team to migrate their site because I was working on the internationalization feature and I was looking for a version one site that needs to migrate to version two and that used the internationalization feature of the version one. This was mostly to, to be sure that we can migrate an internationalized site in version one to version two. 
and just was a was a good candidate to make sure that this was possible and also to document the process so that other sites can migrate to by reading the doc that i have written about this so this was a quite complicated migration because we are using a, a SaaS tool that is called crowdin to send the translation then uh, translate the documents and then uh, re-download the translated documents but the thing is there are a lot of uh, little issues that were complicated i've had to to find uh, ways to, to make it work with DocuSeries 2 until uh, it was uh, possible to migrate the first version of JS website. So this was uh, maybe a process of uh, a few months to get uh, to get it online. It was not easy. <laughs> but now at least I, I know that uh, the internationalization support in DocuSeries 2 is quite good and a lot of people already have uh, adopted it to document their site in multiple languages. And I guess the final thing I could say about DocuSeries is with search done by Algolia, it just works. And that is amazing when you're trying to find something. Yeah. <laughs> Did you evaluate other ways to do search that weren't Algolia or was Algolia just kind of the, the obvious search solution to go with? I don't think there is a lot of uh, search solution um, available. So mostly uh, Algolia is maybe the most popular one and maybe there is Elastic and uh, there are a few other ones. But Algolia makes it free for open source websites. So you just have to ask their team to, to make it work and they provide all the support. So I think it's a win-win situation because they provide support for our community by helping people get their documentation uh, searchable. And uh, in return, they also get a lot of visibility because a lot of sites are using Algolia. I didn't try to contact Elastic or other search providers to see what they have to offer. And uh, they didn't reach out to me either. But uh, I think it may be possible to integrate over search engines, and I try to make the code uh, in such a way that it's possible to actually uh, write a plugin to integrate with something else. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being here, Sebastian. Thank you for all the work you've done with DocuSaurus and helping out with the Redwood stuff, especially. We didn't talk about it too much, but um, if listeners are kind of curious about that, your your name came up many times on the, the conversation with Claire. So she was very much appreciative of, of all the help you gave us and we're really excited to, to have a super cool, modern, multilingual doc site. It's all possible because DocuSaurus. So thanks a lot. Thank you. Thank you for having me.